Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast. This week's uh, podcast recording is actually an episode that we, or a conversation that we recorded about a month ago with uh, Peter, myself, Garth Berrier, and Eric Pertsky on the difference between retroactive and retrospective legislation. It's a pretty big legal geek out episode. Um, but before we get into that, you know, since we've started recording this podcast, Peter and I have been, uh, and Deanna have been joking and talking a little bit about the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency, and uh, it's happened. Peter, uh, what are your thoughts? Mainly in well, regards to what it means for Canada. Well, I mean, what are my thoughts? I think uh, it's it's difficult to say in terms of, uh, we have a candidate who has given very little policy, and in some cases his policy changes from the beginning to the end of a single sentence, so it's very difficult to try to predict exactly what he has in mind. But uh, I think all of us and our colleagues are already getting calls from the United States with respect to people who want to, uh, or at least are expressing intentions to move to Canada. There's been a lot of media attention with respect to that. Um, obviously, our relationship with the states has become a lot more complicated, and the questions that arise both in, in, in a number of different contexts that I deal with on a regular basis, um, the national security context, uh, what does cooperation and ongoing work with the United States mean? Um, at what point do we stop cooperating? At what point, how far does he have to go in carrying out his promises before Canada being complicit in providing information that supports, um, forget about the war crimes and torture that he's promised in some of his speeches, even some of the more, and, and I would say tame, when you talk about the possibility of, of a ban on Muslims or a ban on uh, certain profiles of people. Um, and it is, our office actually received a call this week from a Muslim American who I guess, is concerned about some prospect of a, it sounds crazy to say, but a registry of Muslims in the United States. So I think one, I mean, everybody noticed, and I know it was commented on on election night, that the government of Canada's immigration website crashed. And you've seen, a, you've had a numerous Americans contact you um, regarding the possibility of immigrating or possibly working in Canada. Is there a way you would divide, say, the different, like, what type of people are you seeing? Well, I mean, we're seeing a couple of different uh, profiles of people. I mean, there's people who are in the United States and who are undocumented um, and who are very concerned about status that used to be relatively stable um, or at least was less precarious than it's suddenly become. You suddenly have 11 million people in the United States whose status went from being somewhat precarious to being extremely precarious. Yeah, and people who are in maybe relationships with those people. Exactly. And so you're dealing with people who, or who are family members. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're talking about whole families that might consider uh, immigrating or, or coming to, to Canada if they can obtain more stable status here. Um, in, in some cases, the you know, you look at the dreamers, for example, uh, the people who fit the and these are youth who would have fit under uh, the Dream Act that was that was being proposed or, or the, uh, yeah, the Dream Act uh, was an executive action by uh, President Obama, which would have basically stayed or instructed immigration and customs enforcement in the United States from removing people who were, I think, children and undocumented in the United States. And those were the I think they're called the DACAs, and then there were also their parents. 
Um, and they're in an extremely precarious situation right now, especially because I read that in order to enroll in those programs, you had to give your name, your contact information, and affirm that you were undocumented. And there's a list of over, I read on the 1.5 to 2 million people who uh, are on a government of U.S. list that they are undocumented in the United States. And that list will go from President Obama, who created the list in a, uh, for a benign purpose, to who knows what. And that that type of precarious status uh, obviously is creating some concerns uh, among those people, and and um, they're considering what their options might be here if they're looking at removal to to countries where their situation is is much more problematic. Uh, the other profile of people that I, I've spoken with are um, at quite at the opposite end of the spectrum. These are people who would uh, have a lot of ease uh, moving wherever they like to a certain extent. Uh, they're people who have a lot of resources, uh, are well-educated, have high-paying jobs, um, are very mobile, uh, and for different reasons, at least at this point, do not feel comfortable remaining in the United States and are, are yeah. looking at uh, making a move. And, and some the, of them uh, are... Oh. Oh, so I was just going to say, some of those are... are I've, I've been surprised at the profile of some of the people that have uh, um, uh, that are, are considering moving. Yeah, and the third class of people, and these are actually the ones who uh, I think the election of Donald Trump has, although the other two groups are impacted as well, a more immediate impact from at least a Canadian perspective is uh, President-elect Trump's vocal statements that he wants to renegotiate NAFTA. And there's a lot of Americans who are currently working in Canada on NAFTA work permits, and they're worried about what they're... Should the United States, you know, leave NAFTA or renegotiate NAFTA in such a way that the foreign worker provisions and the ability of Americans to work in Canada and vice versa are limited, they might not be able to stay in Canada as easy. There's been a little bit of suggestion, I, I think, possibly wrongly in the Canadian media that uh, anything that Trump has said with regards to NAFTA is only aimed at Mexico and that Canada would be fine. Um, but from what I've read in, it, in suggesting that this might not be the case, it's worth noting that uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was another massive free trade agreement involving numerous Pacific Rim countries, as well as Canada, the US and Mexico, when the United States signed this agreement, Unlike Canada and Mexico, they didn't expand the ability of uh, anyone to enter the United States. There's no new foreign worker provisions in the TPP. Canada has them, but specifically denied the ability of uh, Americans to gain greater access to the Canadian labor market because America would not reciprocate. So if that, and I don't know why the United States did that, but if that was how they approached the TPP, it's not unreasonable for Americans to think that if NAFTA is renegotiated uh, or outright terminated, that uh, their situation is now unstable. And I have to, I have to say that a number of the, of bilateral agreements, um, just in terms of my my own practice, when I look at extradition, for example, um, what what does that look like in uh, in the relationships between Canada and the United States, and depending on where things go in the United States. Uh, what does that mean for extradition requests? What does that mean for uh, all of the, the bilateral 
type of cooperation that happens between uh, the two countries. We're talking about a lengthy border that's uh, um, when, and there's a lot of cross-border traffic, a lot of cross-border trade movement. Um, to a certain extent, it's one of the more, more uh, fluid borders in the world in terms of uh, ease of passage, uh, aside from when you're talking about common, uh, you know, compared to Europe, yeah. it would be the one exemption. But other than that, you're, you're talking about a, a remarkably fluid border and and with ease of passage across the border and a lot of cooperation between agencies on either side of the border. Yeah, well, I saw in the, uh, I can't remember if it was the Globe and Mail or the Post, that the Pre-Clearance Act and the Beyond the Border Action Plan, uh, which would, this is basically just border agreements between, or agreements between Canada and the United States to reduce restrictions at the border to enhance the ability of, say, trucks entering the United States from Canada to clear customs before they arrive at the U.S. border, that there's concerns that uh, those agreements might be modified or nullified. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, the, sh- the short of it is, is that the situation is unclear. Yeah. And so we don't really have an, a clear indication of what the policies are, what the policy direction is. I think that's going to become clear as the cabinet is named and as the uh, the people in uh, who are going to be surrounding uh, the president-elect become clear. We may have better indications of the direction that things might be going. But uh, for now, um, there's there's a number of aspects of our cooperation with the United States that I would say are uh, remarkably unclear. And depending on how things go in the United States, there may be significant impacts for uh, immigration processes in Canada. Um, oh, and we might before, you know, um, before we get on to Garth, one area that maybe you want to comment on is uh, the Mexican visa. And what the election of Donald Trump might mean to Canada's decision to lift the uh, visa requirement against Mexicans on December 1. I saw that uh, Minister McCollum has addressed the issue specifically this week. Well, and because the, the, the visa requirement on Mexicans not, not only affects Mexicans in Mexico, it also affects the ability of Mexicans in the United States to be coming to Canada without visas. And so, in other words, they can fly and get get onto a plane to come into Canada. Although the one the one caveat that I would have with respect to the lifting of the visa requirement is that it also coincides with the imposition of electronic ta- travel authorizations. And so, how much those are going to reproduce some of what visas used to do at this point is unclear to me. Um, we haven't seen how the electronic travel authorization is going to be applied, how strictly or broadly they might be able to uh, restrict travel or uh, inquire into certain cases with yeah. respect to electron- ETAs or electronic and travel the authorizations. ETA, for those who don't know, it's uh, basically whenever you book a flight from Canada, if you're from a visa-exempt country in, say, Europe, Australia, Japan, you have to quickly do, like, I guess it's easiest to call a mini visa application that's autom- almost automatic, costs like $7. Um, I think part of the concern with the ETA and Mexican visa claims is that uh, the ETA only applies to air travel. So if there's a lot of undocumented people in the United States who face removal, if the visa requirement is lifted, I think they can all travel to Canada by land. 
They can, but they would be covered by the, the difference with the land border is that with respect to the land border, you're subject to the safe third country agreement. And therefore, you can't, unless you fall into one of the exemptions, having family members in Canada, et cetera, or being an unaccompanied minor, for example, um, you can't make a refugee claim at the land border. Yeah. You, you can if you fly in. So if you were to fly from Dallas into Vancouver as a Mexican national, you could make a refugee claim in Vancouver, but if you were to drive from Dallas up to the border at the land border, you would generally not be able to make a refugee claim there. And so the uh, the questions that arise, although uh, depending on what happens in the United States over the coming months and years, the status of the safe third country designation may come into question as well. Yeah. So there's a lot of all those and we'll see and it makes for an interesting time. And uh, that's all we'll say on this for today. But uh, for now, here's the conversation that we had with uh, Garth and Eric on retroactive legislation. So we're here today with uh, Peter Edelman and uh, Steve Mears. And uh, so we're here today with uh, Garth Barriere and Eric Pertsky, uh, two, of, uh, two of the people who are very regularly appearing before the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, Garth, uh, I don't know, first appeared, but uh, from the immigration context, people may be familiar with Garth's name from the COSA decision uh, several years ago. Um, Eric uh, has started his career uh, doing a lot of appellate work and has been uh, flying back and forth to Ottawa on a number of cases, uh, in particular dealing with the implementation of uh, a number of changes to criminal and prison law. Uh, Eric specializes in, uh, in the prison area and in uh, criminal appeals and in, in criminal law in general. Uh, the reason we invited uh, Garth and Eric to come join us today is to talk a little bit about a couple of the cases that they've done recently with respect to retrospectivity. Uh, and one of the issues that was a very live issue in the criminal context and is a continuing issue in the immigration context. And so they've, in, in particular, had two cases, KRG, the most recent one that dealt with retrospectivity, and earlier uh, a case uh, called Whaling, uh, both from the Supreme Court of Canada, that deal with the issue of retrospective or retroactive uh, um, application of legislation. So welcome, uh, Garth and, and Eric. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Uh, so I was hoping maybe we can start uh, just by maybe giving a brief uh, brief description of uh, KRG and whaling and what the issues were in the two cases uh, before we start a, a discussion about retroactive retrospectivity and, and retroactivity, and then maybe we'll try and bring it into uh, how those principles might apply in the immigration context or are Garth, being applied. Garth, do you want to go ahead and talk about whaling, and I can then I, I'll, I'll talk about. Share, Jane. Sure. Um, back in the 90s, Parliament brought in a scheme called Accelerated Parole for nonviolent offenders, and it had two effects. First, it provided an earlier day parole date. So rather than getting day parole six months before you're eligible for full parole, you became eligible for day parole at one-sixth of your sentence. Um, that only really had an effect if you served a sentence over uh, three years. But it got quite an effect if you were serving a long sentence, like 12 years or something for a serious drug offense or other serious offense. Um, and the other effect it had is that it, it was, there was a lower standard or a different standard for 
the criteria for release, rather than the board looking at undue risk sort of generally to commit any of the criminal offenses, they had to look at whether there was a, um, I believe it's something like a likelihood of committing a violent offense within the duration of your sentence. Um, so it was a, a program that was obviously favorable for, for offenders, and you got an earlier eligibility for parole, and you were more likely to get parole um, through the accelerated parole scheme. Um, there was complaints about the scheme from a number of different um, players in the community, and eventually Parliament decided to repeal the accelerated parole scheme, even though, in my opinion, I think it served a valuable purpose in um, using the community's ability to reintegrate somebody rather than the prison system itself. Um, for low uh, or for nonviolent offenders, I think it'd be better to have them in the community under parole than uh, uh, simply warehoused in, uh, in prisons. In any case, Parliament um, did get rid of the select parole regime and they were entitled to do so. But what they did do, quite expressly in the statute, was apply it to what's called retrospectively. So they applied it to people who had been sentenced prior to the commission, uh, or prior to the repeal of the accelerated parole scheme. Um, and so that, that application of the law retrospectively to those persons who had been sentenced prior to the repeal of the scheme was challenged as a violation of Section 11H of the Charter, which uh, protects you from being punished again for an offense. Um, and in that case, the, the first question... Uh, there was no question that it did apply retrospectively. The question really in that case was whether or not um, increasing your period of parole ineligibility was a form of punishment. Um, and we argued that it was both in purpose and effect. So the case law we thought had actually found quite clearly that the reason Parliament makes you ineligible for parole for a period of your sentence is to uh, is for punitive purposes. So even though you may be at the date of your sentencing uh, not an under risk to society, you still have to spend a period of time in jail um, in the unpleasant circumstances of jail before you get out as a form of, of punishment. Um, and uh, so, but we are in any case in, in effect. Um, the uh, increase in your parole eligibility was an increase in punishment. And of course, that was available to Parliament to do going for, on a go-forward go basis. Um, the government argued that the change didn't change the sentence imposed by the judge and therefore wasn't punishment. And the Supreme Court of Canada, actually all levels of court that we appeared before, did find that it was um, punishment. Um, and that the um, and therefore was a violation of Section 11 H of the Charter, and also found that the violation was not saved by Section One. So, in in uh, KRJ was a, a different case, and that was a, a specifically a criminal case, and that section involves Section 161 of the Criminal Code, and that section uh, provides that following a conviction for a certain designated sexual offense. Um, the offender is prohibited from attending certain places like a park, um, playground, and engaging from certain uh, employment activities. Um, and I don't know the exact date, but I think in 2008, uh, they uh, amended the uh, criminal code 
restrictions, those 161 conditions, I'll just call them those, to include a broad, that, to make them actually broader. So uh, they made two important changes. One was um, to prohibit uh, offenders from going on the internet. So there was, a, in effect, a, a blanket provision, subject to, of course, the conditions that the court deemed fit uh, to restrict the offender from going on the internet, um, motivated, of course, by um, concerns about um, child sex predators on the internet um, and an explosion of um, uh, offenses on the internet in a sexual context. And also, uh, that, so that's the first uh, uh, broadening of the 161 condition. And then the fall other condition was uh, to prohibit any contact between an accused, the accused, and someone under the age of 16. Um, so those two uh, provisions were not in the previous uh, 161 condition. Uh, so the question is, uh, is this accused who committed the offense uh, before those broadened changes came into force, do they apply uh, to the accused following his conviction for the sexual offense? Um, we argue that uh, they, they, they should not apply under Section 11i because those uh, conditions imposed on the offender following their sentencing are punishment. So just to, just to clarify, Section 11i of the Charter, uh, which reads that um, any person who's charged with an offense has the right, if found guilty of the offense, and if the punishment for the offense has been varied between the time of the commission of the and, and the time of the sentencing, to the benefit of the lesser punishment. That's right. So the the question really is: Is it punishment? Does it does the does this sanction constitute punishment for the purposes of the Section Eleven I protection, as you just mentioned? Um, and the debate was: The Crown says it's not punishment. We say it is punishment in light of its significant effect on the offender. Ultimately, um, the Supreme Court of Canada um, determined that if was punishment. They were, universal, uh, un- they were unanimous on that point, um, but ultimately um, found that uh, it was saved the, the violation, that's the Section 11i violation, because it was a, a punishment that was, um, that was in effect changed between the time of commission and time of sentencing. Um, that uh, it was saved, it was saved under Section 1, so the violation was saved under Section 1. Uh, in respect of the internet condition, because of the need to protect children and the need um, for no other, um, no other, no other um, mechanism was enforced, and but at the same time uh, said that um, section one, it was the section one, this the charter infringement was not saved under section one uh, for the purposes of the um, no contact with kids, uh, simply because of the breadth of the, the condition. So. And one issue that came up in, in, in KRJ, which didn't come up in Whaling, was whether or not, as a matter of statutory interpretation, the new provisions were actually retrospective. And um, that was an issue at, before the sentencing judge, who found they were not retrospective. It was an issue before the Court of Appeal, um, which we were unsuccessful uh, on that. And I think probably correctly, we were unsuccessful. Uh, we didn't argue before the Supreme Court of Canada that the provisions weren't retrospective, and that was because when you read the 161 as a whole, it became clear that Parliament um, intended them to apply retrospectively. But that, of course, is the first question, and probably the one that's, that's more interesting in the immigration context, is whether or not as a matter of statutory interpretation something is or isn't retrospective. Yeah, and I, and, and it's maybe been, that's it's, 
before, but maybe before we before we continue, um, maybe now's a good time for us to talk about what what when you say retrospective. I know that there's a lot of between retrospectivity and retroactivity. What what is a retrospective piece of legislation? What is a retro or in particular in relation to a retroactive piece of legislation? Well, it can it can be hard to distinguish between the two, but a retrospective piece of legislation is one that that operates um, uh, going forward but it looks to a past completed act or conduct um, to define a consequence for that uh, past completed act or conduct, but it's a present context or a future, sorry, present consequence or a future consequence for a past act. Retroactive legislation literally changes um, what, the, what the legal consequences of the act was in the past. So it, 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 um, it, it changes your legal status as it was in the past. Um, and the distinction is probably less important now because for a while it was clear that there was a presumption against retrospectivity as a matter of statutory interpretation, or sorry, presumption against retroactivity as a matter of statutory interpretation. It was less clear whether that presumption applied in the context of retrospectivity. Um, but in more recent cases, the court has made clear that there is a presumption against retrospectivity. So the distinction between the two is, is not really as important. Um, most cases are retrospective. Yeah, to give an example of uh, something that might be the difference between the retrospective and retroactive, we have seen in the citizenship context, for example, where the question of whether somebody who was born to a Canadian mother ought to be a citizen um, and there's two ways of looking at some of those changes. So some of the changes, for example, with respect to adoptions, were made retrospective. If you were adopted by Canadian parents, you can now apply for a grant of citizenship, but you only become a citizen upon being granted the citizenship in the present in relation to that past action of having been born to adopted uh, Canadian parents. With respect to having born, being born to a Canadian mother, you're deemed to have always been a citizen. And so when you go back, it's actually retro, it has a retroactive effect in the sense that you have been a citizen since 1967, even though you didn't know it. And so the, the impact can make a difference in terms of how you might be, uh, your legal status in the past will have changed. With retrospective legislation, the impact of past uh of the past events will change your current situation, but it won't change the situation in the past. So that's right. So you know, for instance, if there's a change in the immigration context, removing your right to an appeal to the immigration appeal division, um, that's different. That's retrospective, looking back on a past act that now determines that you no longer um, have a right of appeal. If you had gone before the immigration appeal division and, and got a positive result, and legislation tried to take that away from you based on your past conduct, that would be truly retroactive. Um, now, what about some other examples uh, that come to mind? One's been in the news a lot, and I read with the uh, Christy Carter and BC Liberals introducing their foreign buyers' uh, 15% property transfer tax for non-resident purchases. A lot of people were saying that it was retroactive and retrospective in the media because it applied to deals that were already being negotiated. Is that a correct no, or incorrect? I wouldn't say that's term. correct. Like a retro, a truly retroactive effect would mean that anyone 
who has every foreign buyer who has ever purchased needs to go back, you know, ten years, five years from now and pay the tax. Yeah. Right? Retrospective is I always view it as a gentler, uh, kinder form of retroactivity. So would you describe that as retrospective then, where it applies? To I would call I would call it retrospective, but nothing, but yeah. nothing really turns on it on 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 it really. Um, you know, the debate um, that um, I was saying to Garth that when you're dealing in a charter context and when you're debating about whether something actually amounts to punishment, it doesn't. the the big The big fight is whether because you have a charter protection because something is punishment in an immigration context. The law is it, what anything that they do in an immigration context is not really punishment. So in in those in, in, in our two cases, it, we we're quick to say, okay, well, fine, it is it, it, Parliament is legislating retroactively. Now let's move on to the big issue, which is is it punishment? Because then you know there's a charter protection against the imposition of retroactivity um, under Section 11I, as you read. So in a, in a criminal context, it's very easy to say, okay, fine. Parliament is legislating retroactively. Now let's get on to the big issue where yeah. it's actually punishment. Some of that issue happened in, in, in the, the KRJ case because there wasn't notice and so on and so forth. But anyways, so the the, the, the big issue from from a retro retrospectivity uh, perspective uh, in the immigration context is is Parliament actually legislating um, retrospectively? That is, are they reaching in the past um, to change someone's Future uh, present legal legal position based on some past acts, um, and it's it's important to remember that the 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 charter context that we were involved in, Section Eleven I and Eleven H, um, is not going to arise very often because it only arises specifically in the charter context where you have an offense and where there's punishment. And this so, is in the criminal code, like in the criminal realm. The, that's well, yes, the criminal or sometimes quasi-criminal realm. So provincial offenses probably as well. But the, the 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 vast majority of cases are simply going to be decided on a matter of statutory interpretation, whether there was or wasn't retrospectivity. You have no charter right against retrospectivity. And it's and, only it's only in the charter context where you 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 might have that right, whether it's under section seven perhaps, or more likely section eleven. So some people listening might be saying, Well, we just heard though, like what about that example where uh, somebody could face deportation. Isn't that a punishment such that it would arrive, such that it would generate charter protection? Well, and we know the answer here. That's an argument, but yeah. from what I understand, the case law is that the immigration consequences are not punishment, yeah. at least not for the purposes of Section 11 of the Charter. So just, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that for the purpose of understanding this distinction of criminal and immigration and where the Charter arises and where it doesn't happen. But that's not, this might be a good segue. Oh, yeah, but sorry, and that's not, to, we're probably going to get into this, but it's probably, uh, you know, that's not to say that there's, um, you know, I think the, the fundamental idea behind, we're talking about the charter protection, or we're talking about the presumption against retrospectivity. The fundamental concern behind all this stuff is, as a matter of constitutional guarantee or as a matter of fair play in a common law sense, that it's unfair to change, um, if I go through my life and I think, okay, all I got to do is I don't have to commit, and I don't have to get, a, I don't have to commit an act so bad as to get two years in jail. I can do whatever I want, just can't do the two-year thing. Then I won't get deported. But to change the rules of the game halfway through the game, right? That's that's why it's unfair, right? And that's why we have 
that as a canon of statutory interpretation, a presumption against retrospectivity, or in the Charter, Section 11i of the Charter. It's unfair to change the rules of the game halfway through the game. Well, I think one of the big differences, and I think this is maybe a good segue for us to talk a little bit about trend, um, and we've been very fortunate to have, uh, in the introduction, I can uh, point out having uh, Garth assist us uh, as counsel on TRAN, which is the case that we're, is currently pending before the Supreme Court of Canada. One of the issues, uh, so the TRAN case, for those of you who um, are not familiar, deals with a number of issues. The one that's gotten the most prominence in the immigration bar has been around the issue of conditional sentence orders. Uh, and whether their terms of imprisonment for the purposes of Section 36 in IRPA. Uh, however, there is another issue that had, had arisen in Tran. And what happened to Mr. Tran was that he was convicted of uh, the production of marijuana at a time when the maximum penalty for producing marijuana was seven years. And if uh, under Section 36 of IRPA, a permanent resident is inadmissible if they're convicted of an offense with a maximum penalty of 10 years or more. And so the question that arises in Mr. Tran's case, subsequent to the commission of the offense, he was, the, the penalty was raised by Parliament from 7 years to 14 years. So currently someone who is convicted of production of marijuana would clearly be convicted of an offense with a 14-year maximum, and therefore if they were permanent resident would be subject to deportation under Section 36.1. However, Mr. Tran clearly was never subject to a punishment of more than seven years because of Section 11i of the Charter, which we've just spoken about. Even if someone is charged 20 years later, they're still not subject to the higher punishment. And so that issue has arisen in the, in the Tran case. And I, I think one of the things Garth has just pointed out, and, both, and Eric as well, is that the first question is, is there engagement of the Charter? And there are two ways that we see the engagement of the Charter. One is in terms of saying, is it directly engaged? And I think that the Supreme Court of Canada in Metabarsky and in, more recently in B10 has somewhat put to bed the idea that the Charter is directly engaged in the loss of status. So there may be engagement of the Charter in the removal stage, but in terms of the loss of status, it's very difficult to argue the Charter is directly engaged in the way that it very clearly is in the criminal context. So Section 11 of the Charter is very clearly engaged in the criminal context. The arguments are, are as to whether or not the effects or punishment, is it a violation of the Charter for Parliament to do certain things? In the immigration context, we're usually talking about principles of statutory interpretation. And there's a strong presumption against retrospectivity. And that, in, in, the, in the context of interpreting IRPA, and we've seen this more recently with uh, the federal skilled worker, in the federal skilled worker context, where Parliament retrospectively changed the rules for federal skilled worker applications and sent back 250,000 applications without processing them. These are all people who had a right to a decision prior to the legislation being passed and then found themselves in a position where they could no longer make an application and their applications were sent back to them. And if Parliament does it very clearly and unequivocally, if you don't have a charter right to hang your hat on, 
you can't challenge the legislation. So you're doing it as a principle of statutory interpretation instead of being able to challenge it directly, which is in the cases that, uh, that Eric in Whaling and in KRJ, because you're in the criminal context, you can challenge the legislation directly and say, this is retrospective, there's a blanket prohibition on retrospectivity, and therefore the, the legislation is unconstitutional if there's retrospective application of well, punishments. And, and that's true. And, and the other thing is what I, you know, I find really peculiar in this, um, you know, and also not the charter context, but this, the general presumption of retrospectivity is that there's nothing per se wrong with um, retroactive legislation, provided that Parliament do it clearly and say, we're, hey, folks, we're applying this thing retroactively or retrospectively. Here's how far we're reaching back. For greater certainty, and, you know, Garth and I were talking about this a little bit before the session today, but um, that's the big that's the big problem now. And I have a number of other, I have two other cases that I've done that are not charter cases. They just simply deal with the with whether Parliament is legislating retro retrospectively. Do I have a kind of factual background in those cases? Uh, it's a bit complicated, but um, in one of the cases, it concerns. Um, and an order made under the Sexual Offenses Registry Act, um, and that's um, and it basically at, you have a certain amount of length of order, twenty years of life, and what happened in this case is Parliament um, made an increase at pies for life, but it made that change after the guy committed the offense. When it comes up for sentence, he gets the larger sentence, uh, he gets the larger SWAR order. So the question is, it's you know, it's clear SWAR order is not punishment under the charter. So we can't run to the charter. We've got to do it under the regular principles of statutory interpretation that we applied for leave on this and we never got anywhere. Um, uh, but the big issue is the Crown stands up and says, well, this is about public safety. So um, uh, the presumption against retrospectivity doesn't apply. Now, it's always clear that Parliament never said explicitly um, we're reaching into the past, and my sense is, Parliament likes to leave it a little bit vague, and um, the courts uh, are, uh, for the most part, um, filling it in and saying, "Well, yeah, it's it's clear that um, they, there's no there's no pr presumption against retrospectivity. Um, it just applies as of on a go forward. It applies on a, not on a go forward basis, but just applies to everyone. Um, so." And that's when we start getting into the presumption of retrospectivity. But it's always clear that Parliament can rebut that with clear and specific language. In all those cases, we're saying Parliament hasn't used clear and specific language. So what I find really interesting, and haven't really even considered until this discussion, is uh, this notion that, I mean, we were talking, loss of status isn't punishment. Being added to a sexual offenders registry apparently isn't punishment. I didn't know that until now. That's really surprising to me. So what does constitute punishment such that Section 11H of the Charter, I of the Charter, is engaged? Well, the, the, the question has been dealt with in the two cases that we dealt with, and it's been, it depends on the particular context. I've come up with different kind of tests, but the, the, the main test is that it's a sanction that's imposed as part of the as a, as a consequence of your conviction, and that it um, it's imposed for the purposes and principles of sentencing, or it has a, um, a significant impact on your on your liberty. 
Um, so those are the those are the, uh, the, the sort of the criteria. Um, and but I think I'd like to get back to so we've talked a bit of the charter and so on. But the real fight in most cases is not going to be a charter fight. It's going to be about whether or not um, something whether or not the legislature intended because this is all about parliamentary intent or legislative intent. Whether the legislature intended to have the law apply retrospectively. And this comes into the presumption of retrospective. Right, and I think what we're seeing now is a kind of disconnect. I actually went and did some historical research, and the presumption against retroactivity has been around for a long time. The presumption against retrospectivity is a little bit more recent, but it's now firmly established in the case law, some of the cases um, that Eric and I did in some other cases more recently, which is great. It's a movement forward, and because I think that whether it's retroactive or retrospective, you're doing the same thing. You're changing the legal consequences of a past conduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just doing it in slightly different ways. And so the principles that, that, that are, the common law principles that are, um, that are uh, challenged by retrospectivity or retroactivity um, are, are common. Um, what I think we're seeing, so on the one hand, the law has improved in that there's now a fairly strong presumption against retrospectivity when you're doing a statutory interpretation analysis to determine Parliament's intent. However, there's a disconnect, I think, with the actual application of that mm-hmm. presumption, or, or um, because it can be rebutted. And according to Supreme Court of Canada in, in Dinley, um, um, it has to be the, the 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 legislature has to be clear. Well, how how clear, or how do you determine whether they they're clearly in tra- applying? something retro, retrospectively. And I think that there's a comment in, in the tran factum that we take from some of the case law that what you have to see is Parliament struggling with the, 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 the sense of the violation of the rules of law, the violation of, of, of a sense of fairness that Eric talked about earlier. And that if the legislature or Parliament has struggled with that and, has yet, and, and then decided, yes, we're going to make this retroactive retrospective, then the courts have to respect that. But what we're seeing, I think, is a lot of cases in which there's absolute silence in the legislation. There certainly isn't anything express. Probably not something, not a requirement of retrospectivity by necessary implication. At best, it's a, it's an inference drawn from, from uncertain language. Um, and the courts are relying on context or purpose of the legislation. And that, to me, is really problematic because it's the courts not requiring um, the legislature to be clear. Well, and it's funny because I did another case that where that same thing happened, and um, the crown we said, well, it's not clear that this is operating that that parliament is intending to operate retro have, have retrospective uh, effect, and um, because of the, the, the legislation could have been, um, it can be interpreted two ways. I think in our, that case that I did, there, there's two plausible, um, equally plausible um, options or interpretations, one retrospective, one non-retrospective. And the Crown came back with a statement from Hansard. And I always thought, like deep down in, in my heart, I thought, well, if you're going to Hansard um, and saying what the, you've already lost it. Because you're, 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 cause as we know, you can only go to Hansard if there's some legislative ambiguity and you want to sort of flesh it out a little bit more. I always view, if you go to Hansard, it's almost like an admission that the legislation is ambiguous. And so just to be clear, for those who don't know, Hansard is a record, is a record of the proceedings in either 
parliament or uh, or the or the senate or their subcommittees. So it's a transcript of what people have said in that particular context during the passage of a particular law. But it, but and even in that case, I mean, it, it, and then we looked at the the, the Hansard statements of the minister, and the minister was specifically asked in the Senate. Um, does this apply retrospectively? And he says, well, I'm not going to get into that debate about retrospectivity versus retroactivity. No one asked him to ask him about the debate, but he skirted the issue, right? Because my sense is that the talking points were, don't, it's dangerous territory, don't talk about it. Right? Because they're kind of scared, it's dangerous territory. And so he, he leaves it deliberately vague. And um, rather than, um, you know, and our argument is, um, well, if, if he's leaving deliberately vague, there's no clear indication on the, on the face of the statute. That's the end of it. Um, you, you, court, can perform the role of now saying that there is clear and specific language. Now, uh, that's, that's the... And I don't think it needs to be necessarily absolutely expressed where Parliament says, we are applying this retrospectively. There are cases and legislation that does that. Um, in those expressed terms, but it has to be clear. It has to be sort of obvious when you when you read the legislation. And a, a good example of, of of where that's that's not really taking place is actually in the Tran case because I reread our factum in Tran, and the 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 argument on um, the statutory interpretation of the provision goes into the use of past participles and gerunds and how the different tenses and the in the, in the section relate to each other. And if you're at that level of picking apart the, 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 the language of the, of, the, um, of the provision to determine whether, whether or not it's retrospective or not, it's not clear. And so it, that's it just what, can't meet the standard of, of being clear. So that's what I was going to ask in this presumption of retrospectivity. Can, you were saying the presumption against <laughs> retrospectivity, can it... Um, so you're saying, can it be done through omission? So, for example, the wording of the relevant section 36.1 is that a permanent resident is inadmissible on grounds of serious criminality for having been convicted in Canada of an offense under an act of punishment or under an act of parliament punishable by a maximum term of imprisonment of at least 10 years. So someone might look at that and say, well, the plain textual readings based on those tenses says would, doesn't say if it was at the time. But from what I'm understanding, the case law is developing such that the presumption against retrospectivity is that we don't need, it shouldn't be, or it isn't an analysis of tenses as much as what was the intent, and is there a clearly stated intent by the legislature, that's something to be retrospective. Well, what I'm saying is there's a dysfunction between what, what on one hand the courts are saying, that there's a strong presumption against retrospectivity, and that it has to be clear that the legislature turned their mind and decided to nevertheless make the, um, uh, the legislation retrospective and what's actually being decided by the courts. Because, the, the, uh, in my opinion, the courts aren't always requiring that, that level of clearness before they find that the presumption's been rebutted. And that's unfortunate because what you're actually doing is you're, you're, you're relieving the legislature of their obligation to do that weighing of because remember, the, the, the problem with retrospectivity, um, and it was dealt with in KRJ, that, you know, it, it, um, it, it, um, it, it, it undermines the rule of law. It undermines present legislation because you don't know if that legislation is going to be changed in the future or not. And it undermines fairness. So 
Those are all things that the legislature should be considering. And after having considered those, making a considered judgment about whether or not to apply the legislation retrospectively. And if it does, it needs to indicate that clearly. But I think that that's exactly what, when you see that unfairness um, applying, is that you have people who their affairs are set up in such a way that they understand the law. And you take the Tran example. Tran is a very good example of that, where if the Federal Court of Appeal is right, that you can go back and everybody who's ever been convicted of uh, production of marijuana suddenly became inadmissible when Parliament changed the criminal law. That has very serious implications for somebody who, a permanent resident who 25 years ago was convicted of production of marijuana, has not been inadmissible this entire time. Has created a family, has the, bought property and started and the, a business. And it sounds absurd, but like the, the, the theory behind this and the rule of law construct, even though we know that deterrence doesn't really work in our law, but we have a theory of deterrence, and that is that by increase, by if I do an act, I say, well, you know, if I do this act, I won't get deported because I'm just possessing, you know, uh, stolen property. And I'm going to get five, six months jail max. Um, it's based on a rational theory, rational, rational actor theory. Like, so I'm not going to go out and start importing drugs. So I know that's probably going to get me deported, but you know, I can engage in more low level criminality and that's not going to, that's not going to result in those consequences. So maybe I wouldn't have committed those offenses had I known that these were the consequences. Now I know in reality that doesn't happen, but that's why we have deterrence as a sentencing principle because it's based on the theory that people do those types of things. And you know, I, I was at, I, I did one of these other retro um, uh, spectivity cases, a statutory interpretation case, and I said, well, maybe he wouldn't have committed these sex offenses if he knew that he wasn't going to get a larger score order. And you know, the court said, well, no, I wouldn't take it that far, but maybe it's just a sense of fair play. And okay, fine. That's maybe what it's about too. It's about a sense of fair play. But it's that's the whole theory about all this stuff, and that's the importance of it. So when we talk about the presumption of retrospectivity as a canon of statutory interpretation, it has important underpinnings of you know legal and social and political value that are just as strong as the charter value. The charter says it strongly, but more strongly. But um, well, I think it'd be true in the taxation system or anywhere else. Any I other think system? That we're getting to, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. I was gonna. I was gonna say it does have much broader implications. But um, are we almost done? Well, we can. Uh, we were. We were I, I was gonna talk just briefly about, um, or maybe Garth would talk about this, um, and that is the public safety exception uh, to the presumption against retrospectivity, because I can see that arising, because um, that basically says that um, if Parliament is um, enacting for the purpose of protecting the public, um, that is presumed yeah. to have. Retro, retrospective effect. So I can see the argument on the government side saying, well, listen, um, we have the public safety because we're dealing with, pub, you know, IRPA is a, the Immigration Refugee Protection Act is a public safety um, thing. We're dealing with, we're dealing with criminal inadmissible. We're dealing with questions of public safety. So the presumption, that presumption against retrospectivity doesn't apply because we're in the realm of pub, uh, the public safety exception. Well, but then, I mean, you still have to do, even if the presumption doesn't apply, you still have to do a statutory interpretation exercise to determine whether Parliament did, in fact, want something to apply retrospectively. You just don't have the benefit of, the, of a presumption against retrospectivity. But I think it actually raises a, 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 a bigger issue, which is that 
legislatures and and then the executive who are applying the, the acts passed by legislatures, they want the fullest benefit of the remedial act of legislating. And the fullest benefit is to have legislation apply to everybody, no matter when they committed particular conduct or, or, or acts. Um, and in fact, we see that, for instance, with the, the tax on foreign buyers in British Columbia, we want the benefit of the tax and its effect, regardless of when you um, um, sign the contract for sale of property, as long as you hadn't done the actual transfer yet, it applied to you. Um, and so it's always open to the government to say, well, we, 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 want this. we want this to apply retrospectively. We want this new legislative regime to apply retrospectively um, because we want the full benefit. We're not going to get the full benefit if it doesn't apply retrospectively. And that's true. And I think it's it's a it's a it's it's a it's an argument that is very enticing for a lot of courts because they want to see the the, the legislation, especially if it's remedial, especially if it has public safety or public policy sort of rather than strictly sort of private interest but public interest sort of aspects to it. There's a there's a, a knee jerk reaction to want to have that legislation apply as broadly as possible. Uh, and then that's where I think we get away from the obligation of the government to show that, no, the legislation clearly indicated it was retrospective. So we're no longer asked, we no longer apply the same standard because simply we want the legislation to, to, um, to, uh, to apply. Because there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with legislating you know, re- retroactively, retrospectively, um, subject to the charter, and subject, this goes, I mean, it, I hate to say it, but it's, it's not difficult. If they want, if Parliament wants to do something retroactively, subject to the limitations in the Charter, they can do it. So a lot of this debate is just, it's, it's based much, it's in large part around um, the legislature, actually, I think, or the Parliament just wanting to keep things a little bit vague. Well, I, I think that it also comes down to the issues around fairness and the, the underlying principles with respect to the rule of law is that if Parliament wants to have something apply retrospectively, they should openly tell the public, Maybe, this is what yeah. we're doing. We are going to punish you or we're going to have implications for things that you did in the past. And there may be consequences politically for that. And we're going we're gonna to raise the tax rates going back three years, right? That's, and there would be a public reaction to that because people would find that to be very unfair to say your tax rate for the past three taxation years is going to be increased by 3% and you now have to retro, you retroactively, retrospectively are going to have to pay all these additional taxes today, people would react very negatively to that. And and there would be a very strong reaction against that because people would find that to be fundamentally And think about, think about from a perspective of a person, for example, that gets a seven month sentence, right? And let's say he's finished serving a sentence and he's got seven months and he goes, he's waiting. He doesn't know when the immigration authorities are going to come by, if at all. But they can, maybe. And so I just think that's and that's what everyone's fear is. Everyone's scared, uh, and that's what this what all this is designed to protect against. It's the it's the midnight knock on the door, right? So. All right. Well, we were hoping to talk a little bit about standard review, but uh, we've already taken up a lot of uh, Garth and Eric's time. So, uh, and it's one o'clock. I know that you have somewhere you need to go. 
Um, so I think we're going to have to invite you back to, to have a more sure. uh, in, engaged discussion about standard review because uh, I expect that we can probably... the issues resolved by that. It will never be. Unresolvable. It'll move forward, step by step. So, but thank you very much for joining us today. You're it's, welcome. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a good, uh, okay. good discussion Thanks. and um, I'm sure we'll have a chance to have you guys back at some point okay. in the future. Thank you. This has been the Borderlines Podcast. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at www.borderlines.ca. You can also find us on Twitter, BorderlinesCA. You can download the podcast from iTunes and SoundCloud. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review. It will help other people to find the podcast. Thank you very much to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music.